Good morning, everyone. We're a talkative crew, always. Good morning. My name is Christina Hubbard. I've been here around a redemption for a while, so it's really good to be with you guys this morning. We are in our Saints series. Um, so last week we looked at the life of novelist and preacher Frederick Buechner and how he invites us to listen to our lives through the lens of history and memory, which help us to make new meaning today. His work and his life ask us to consider the fathomless mystery of our own lives. Today, I want to ask you to consider the life of a rather peculiar saint. And I have a caveat. This individual is not your typical saint. Um, this isn't really a typical sermon, I have to say. This person is controversial, not only because of who she is, but also because of the work she did and the language that she used. May I ask you, though, to set aside your judgment for just a few minutes and consider a reevaluation of what it means to be a saint. Is a saint a completely holy person, closer to God than most of us? Or is a saint a normal person, loved by God and bent by sin, like you or me, who has fumbled into his grace? The question really is, do we believe that our brokenness is the medium in which divine grace works? Can God work the mystery of divine mercy, even in our grotesque state of human imperfection? Can he weave people like us together through his love into the communion of saints? With those questions sort of dangling in your mind, let me introduce you to our unlikely saint. In, it's 1945, and a young woman of 19 walks into the office of Paul Engel, the director of the Iowa Writers' Workshop, a program where 28 Pulitzer Prize-winning writers have gone through, including Marilyn Robinson, the author of Gilead. The young woman speaks, and Ingle thinks that she's ignorant because he can't understand a word she says. Her accent is too thick. And Ingle tells her, would you please write down what you're saying? So she writes down, my name is Flannery O'Connor. I'm not a journalist. Can I come to the writer's workshop? After her first novel, which was called Wise Blood, a man once said to Flannery, that was a profound book. You don't look like you wrote it. She mustered up her squintiest expression and snarled, well, I did. So that's all the, the southern accent you're going to get from me today. <laughs> Rogers, Jonathan Rogers calls her a peculiar prophet who possessed the unusual air of one crying out in the wilderness. O'Connor shows us a kind of vision that sees how things really are, both the beautiful and the awful. And through it reveals transcendence, artistry, and grace-filled reality, often through freakish characters and acts of violence. She lived as a devout Catholic, a sufferer of chronic disease, and a master of the short story. Her fiction beats with dark humor and, re and redemption about hard-to-love, complicated people. And her work often reveals the tragedies of racism and discrimination, but there are some problems with her work. So I just want to take a look at her life for a few minutes, and then we'll look at sort of the vision behind her fiction. And then finally, we'll consider some of those complications and the questions that it invites us to ask. So Flannery was born into a devout Catholic family, very influential and prominent in Savannah, Georgia. 
on March 25, 1925. She was called Mary Flannery until she went to Iowa for grad school when she changed it to just Flannery. She was an unusual kid. She didn't really hang out with other children. In fact, she called her parents by their first names. She was physically and socially awkward. She called herself a pigeon-toed only child with a receding chin and a you-leave-me-alone-or-I'll-bite-you complex. Uh, the friends she did have, she would have them over to her house and ha make them sit down in her room and listen to the stories that she wrote about ducks and chickens. A cameraman once came from a news agency in New York to film her unusual chicken who could walk backward. She was five years old, and that began her on a lifelong quest to collect more and more poultry. She collected odd ones. She collected odd ones, one with a green eye and one orange or with overlong necks and crooked combs. She wanted one with three legs or three wings, but nothing in that line turned up. She even made clothes for them. Her mother, Regina, was kind of a controlling woman and tried to regiment Flannery's life and pulled to get her advantages in society. Her father, Edward, in 1937, when Flannery was 12, he started to show visible signs of the disease called lupus, an autoimmune disease that entails skin discolorations, fatigue, aches and pains. Basically, it's the immune system wearing away. And there was no treatment for it. He was uh, a real estate business owner, but his business never really took off. But in 1938, he got a job with the housing authority in Atlanta. So Regina, Flannery's mother, and Flannery moved to Milledgeville, Georgia, which is about two hours southwest of Atlanta, a town of about 7,000. And they moved into a mansion with her mother's sisters. But her father commuted, and he was basically like a weekend visitor. In 1941, three years later, when he was 45, he died of lupus. Flannery didn't know him well, but he enjoyed her, he delighted in her, and what she created. She was often making cartoons besides the stories that she wrote, and he would carry them around with her and show them to his friends. He was very proud of her. Flannery attended Catholic school her entire life, and she was faithful to the Catholic Church. But she was kind of precocious, if you haven't gotten that from her picture there. At six, she would skip the mandatory children's mass at her Catholic school, and then she would go instead with her family to Mass, and she would tell the nuns at her school, the Catholic Church does not dictate to my family when I go to Mass. As an adult, she joined a Protestant book club, but the Catholic Church had banned one of the books on the list. She submitted herself to the Church's authority and asked a priest if it was okay for her to read that book, which is kind of a mark of her humility and trust in the Church her entire life. When she went to high school, she was not a fan of school, um, but she found a home on the newspaper staff doing satirical portraits of her students and her chickens, and she had odd hobbies like collecting publishers' rejection slips. Um, and just to give you an idea of where she lived, this town of Milledgeville, Georgia, was home to a reform school, a military school, and an insane asylum. So going to Milledgeville meant going crazy. She lived among an interesting group of people, a different kind of cultural diversity. But when she was 17 years old and less than two weeks out of high school, um, she went to college at Georgia State College for Women, now Georgia State University. She was awkward, brusque, and confident. And instead of saying hello or hey, she would hail friends with greetings. She, submitted, she even submitted some of her cartoons to the New Yorker, but they were eventually rejected. Um, 
She finished college at age 19, a few weeks after World War II in 1945. And you can see some of her cartoon work there on the slide. She was accepted to the Iowa's Writer Workshop at 19, in 1945, and she intended to continue studying journalism and cartooning. When she was at the Iowa Writer's Workshop, she obtained her Master's of Fine Arts degree in 1947 and then was offered a postdoc fellowship. Her talent stood out amongst a class of mostly white males who were older, who had come home after World War II. She would sit in the back of the classroom with a quiet, confident presence. Her work was extremely well received by her professors, but not really by her, her fellow writers. She saw her writing as a gift. She was once asked, Miss O'Connor, why do you write? She said, because I'm good at it. She saw her writing gift as both a responsibility and sort of this mysterious thing, something gratuitous and wholly undeserved. Her devotion to God was also very deep and sincere, and she consecrated her talent to God regularly in her journals. After Iowa, she went to a writing community up in New York where artists, composers, and visual artists could work uninterrupted. But her fellow artists were kind of an unruly bunch prone to drinking and sleeping around, and she would attend mass with the housekeepers instead. Her work really started to come together there. She started to create this interesting cast of characters, which included country people, prophets, freaks, and others. There was a lot of drama at this writing community where she was, so she ended up becoming a paying house guest of some friends who lived in Connecticut. In the winter of 1950, she finished her first novel, Wise Blood, there, and at that time, she began to notice a heaviness in her arms when she would write. She was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis at age 25, but on a long train ride home to Milledgeville for Christmas, she developed a fever, and a family member who picked her up from the train said she looked like she had aged overnight. The doctor told her mother, Regina, that Flannery had lupus. Regina, her mother, did not tell her because she thought that she couldn't handle it. Flannery didn't learn of her diagnosis for another 17 months. Every case of lupus is different, often misdiagnosed today even as rheumatoid arthritis, and there's still no cure, but at least 80 to 90% of people have a normal life expectancy, but not then. In 1951, um, her mother and and, and Flannery moved to this beautiful farm called Andalusia. It was a dairy and beef farm right outside of Milledgeville. There was a dirt road, and it was this quiet working farm with big shady trees and chickens in the back and fig trees. She and her mother lived there for 13 years, and Andalusia shows up in her stories a lot, sometimes as a character. She ended up collecting 40 peacocks at Andalusia which was this lifelong obsession she had with birds, with peafowl. These magnificent birds had a strained relationship, though, with her mother. They ate all the flowers, all the fig trees, and all the vegetables. She wrote an essay about her obsession with them called King of the Birds. And she said the spread tale of the peacock would inspire a range of emotions for people who came to the farm. Some people would sit silently and just stare at it. One time a woman said, amen, amen, when she saw the peacock and all his beautiful halos on his tail. She said, many people, though, I've found are congenitally unable to appreciate the sight of a peacock. Once or twice I've been asked what the peacock is good for, 
a question which gets no answer from me because it deserves none. The peacocks show her attention to the fantastic, the startling, the beautiful, and the peculiar. She believed the peacock fulfilled its purpose just as it was, beauty for beauty's sake, if you will. She applies this to art, too. Art should be good on its own, with not a lot of critique and analysis. Art for art's sake. There's a certain kind of unmerited abundance here. And this leads me to a major theme in her work, which is this idea of gratuitousness. <clears throat> Gratuitous means given freely, spontaneous. No, there's really no reason for it. Um, it's excessive, it's abundant. We use the word gratuitous often for things like gratuit gratuitous sex or violence in a movie, and it has a very negative connotation. But here, she means it possesses a connotation of abundance, given freely as a gift above and beyond, like the peacock. What is he good for? But the question is, can everyone see this abundance in the peacock or art or even in the world? Flannery saw the world in an unusual way. She did unconventional things for a Catholic Southern woman writer. And she had this profound insight into Protestantism. I grew up in the South as a Southern Baptist, and I can promise you that I have seen glimpses of her characters in people that I've met. <laughs> she has a keen observer, or she is a keen observer of human nature in all its ugliness and beauty, and what it takes to wake up a person to mystery. Flannery is peculiar and eccentric, and I think she had to be to write the way she did. She disliked sentimentality, and she wrote with this startling realism about the segregated culture around her. She tried to write honestly how life was for white and black, capturing how people talked, and sometimes with offensive language. But she also wrote about strange grace and eccentric characters, imperfect prophets, if you will, who bring a divine message. She was great at satire, irony, and dark humor. And she conveys moments of redemption in profoundly shocking ways. Sort of the vision behind her work, I think, is really captured in this idea. She thinks that good, honest fiction comes from the things that you can taste, see, and feel in the world, the tangible. Good fiction enables us as the readers to open up the aperture of our sight, like kind of a camera lens widening, to see some aspect of mystery, transcendent or spiritual. So I recently went to the eye doctor for a checkup. He gave me a new contact lens prescription um, that I was supposed to try out. But um, the script that I got was different from my old one. So when I got home, I put the lenses in and everything was blurry, at least everything that was close up. I couldn't read my phone, I couldn't read a book, but I could see everything far away really well. And the doctor had assured me I'm not ready for bifocals yet. So what was going on? He'd given me a script that actually corrected overly well for distance, but sacrificed close up vision. So I went back, got, an, got my old script, which was just right, and it allowed me to see both at a distance and up close. And that's what Flannery is saying that good fiction does. It clarifies vision, both far off and especially what is right in our face. As a fiction writer, she honestly writes how life is, not how she wants it to be. 
these observable concrete details gradually take on meaning. And as the story continues, those details grow our, our ability as the readers to see different levels of meaning beyond the spiritual and hope, or beyond the, the physical, and hopefully we as the readers can see that spiritual meaning. So how did she see the world? I'd like to say that she saw the world with a sacramental imagination. That means that she saw the holy in the world around her. She observed the world, and, and as she did so, she saw that as an inherently moral act. When a person sees with this kind of sight, he sees sin for what it is. It becomes more grotesque, perverse, and unacceptable. And he also sees his need for redemption. For instance, think about someone who's gone through 12-step recovery. That person has had a moment of grace where they have admitted um, that they have an addiction of some kind, and they've accepted help. And they have this kind of sight and language that is raw and honest and so truthful sometimes that it pierces the souls of those around them. It helps their friends and families to live with a new sight for the precious gift and the mystery of life. Flannery herself was living in and observing a Christ-haunted South, where ghosts of a Christ-saturated culture still roam. If you go there today, you can still feel it in places. But she's right, the Bible Belt is losing its language of Scripture and God. She saw a world losing its grip on reality. There was a problem, and that was a problem in Flannery's time, and it's a problem in ours. She saw that nobody believed in the Incarnation and nobody was her audience. She said, my audience are the people who think that God is dead. She deeply cared for her friends that were, that were searching for God, and she encouraged them in letters. So in Flannery's age, more and more people were, were rejecting a need for redemption because they didn't need God anymore to explain the unknown. We've talked about the decline of Christendom here at Redemption, and with that decline, a faith in humanity itself began to rise. Now, I'm speaking in very general terms here, but on the whole in the Western world, trust in knowledge and humanity's abilities took the place of religion. This trust in so-called certainties began to root itself in people's imaginations, and I think Flannery would say this began to crush a person's capacity for mystery for the imagination to see God at work in the everyday world and to be okay with not having everything figured out. She was trying to reignite her readers' sensibility for the supernatural and open their awareness to God at work in the world. Flannery said that the writer who is a Christian must make a world that has no need for redemption seem abnormal. We need to see our need for God. She said, when you can assume that your audience holds the same beliefs that you do, you can relax a little and use more normal means of talking about it. When you have to assume that your audience does not, then you have to make your vision apparent by shock. To the hard of hearing, you shout, and for the almost blind, you draw large and startling figures. She was trying to speak the language of a culture familiar with Christianity, but that no longer believed that Christ was really real. So she decided to use unconventional means to wake people up, and we'll talk about how she did that in a moment. In our scripture today, Jesus asked the people what kind of prophet they were expecting. As they went away, Jesus began to see the crowds concerning John. 
What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. This is Jesus speaking, and he's praising John as the pinnacle of prophets, ushering in the kingdom. But even the least of these is greater than John. And this confuses people. Why would a poor beggar be greater than a prophet? Jesus goes on to compare these people that he's speaking to to discontented children because they don't have the ears to hear the good news of the kingdom. Their sights are set on distance vision and they can't see what is right in their face. God's kingdom comes with a spiritual power that disrupts our sense of how things should be done and who we should associate with. Jesus is saying, wake up, foolish people. The kingdom is breaking in here right now. And it has a feast of grace for each one of us. But all you people can see, he says, is that John the Baptist is a lunatic. And in me, Jesus, your savior, you call me a drunk who befriends misfits. In her fiction, Flannery cries out like a prophet herself. And she uses eccentric, imperfect prophets to shout, exaggerate, and tell stories about the extravagant, subversive nature of God's kingdom, which often crashes into our lives through a jarring moment of grace where we are beckoned to truly see. So we've talked about Flannery's life and her vision, and I want to talk about how she accomplished this vision. One of her key methods to do this was violence in fiction. When I say the word violence, I do want to be sensitive that this word can bring up the real nonfiction violences in our own lives. I don't think Flannery is saying that violence can be redeemed always or made sense of, but violence in fiction is the tool that she chose to to shock her audience into awareness. She said that her age was almost incapable of seeing intrusions of grace in their lives. She said, in my own stories, I found that violence is strangely capable of returning my characters to reality and preparing them to accept their moment of grace. Their heads are so hard that almost nothing else will do. This idea that reality is something to which we must be returned at all costs is something that's implicit in the Christian view of the world. So I'd love to summarize one of her stories for you. It's a story called Revelation, and if you've never read any of her work, it's a great place to start. Um, The main character is this stout, condescending white woman named Mrs. Turpin, whose name means disgraceful or humbled. She sits in a doctor's office, and she begins judging all the people around her. And she does this under the mask of Southern decency. There's also an ugly college girl named Mary Grace listening to all this conversation, and she's staring at Mrs. Turpin from behind her anatomy book, and she's shooting her dagger eyes. Mrs. Turpin sits there, and she really thinks that she's a good person. She 
and her husband Claude own pigs and land, but she's not stuck up about it. She goes on and on about her pig parlor and how her pigs are clean. All the while, she's judging the black, the white, the wealthy, and the poor, all sitting around her and justifying herself to herself in her head. Just as she says aloud, thank you, Jesus, for making everything just the way it is, meaning thank you for not making me trash, and thank you for not making me uppity. Just at that moment, a book strikes her across her left eye, and she feels nails digging into her neck. Mary Grace, the college student, has just flattened Mrs. Turpin. At that moment, Mrs. Turpin is lying on the ground, and her vision grows small and then expands. Right before Mary Grace looks at her and basically says, go to Hades, you old warthog. When Mrs. Turpin gets home, she can't shake this experience she's had. She keeps saying to herself, I am not a warthog from hell. But she really thinks that she, a respectable, hardworking, church-going woman, has been singled out for a message from God. She goes out to clean the pig parlor and rails at God. If trash is what you wanted, then why didn't you make me trash? She's getting this sense that her decency and the sense of the entire order of her world is being flipped upside down. Instead, there's this gratuitous love that is breaking through and redefining her reality. She finally shakes her fist at God and says, who do you think you are? The color of everything, the field and the crimson sky, burns for a moment with this transparent intensity. Her question carries over the cornfields. No audible answer comes. But this beautiful red glow settles on an old sow pig in the corner. It's like she's looking into the heart of mystery. She raises her hands up to the sky and sees with a visionary light. She saw the streak as a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the earth through a field of living fire. Upon it, a vast horde of souls were tumbling toward heaven. There were whole companies of white trash clean for the first time in their lives and bands of others in white robes and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And bringing at the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as though who, like herself and Claude, had always had a little of everything and the given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were on key. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces, even their virtues were being burned away. Flannery saw grace as something that could act upon someone through matter, that even the imperfect, the purely human, and even the hypocritical could do this. And so we have Mrs. Turpin in this moment of redemption, seeing the narrowness of her own self-righteousness. She wrestles with it, and the sunset glowing on her and the pigs and her whole world wakes her up to a sense of God's beautiful, abundant grace. But notice that she doesn't quite get all the way there. There's still a hierarchy in her vision. Not everyone is on equal footing. 
Mrs. Turpin is still very much in process. And this brings me to the problems in Flannery's work. Her work in many ways did expose injustice, but there was also racism in her work. Um, there are racial jokes and slurs, and even in some of her personal letters there are. She tried to write language um, of, of the Southern life as it was, and it offends then, or offended then, and it offends now. Some say that she was progressive on the race issue for her time, but others say that, was, that she was actually in the normal range. Many black artists and writers recognize the genius of her work, but they also recognize that she probably wouldn't have invited them into her home for a chat. Toward the end of her life, she signed a letter as Mrs. Turpin, which shows a self-mocking awareness of her own ability to be the offender. And that may be a lens through which we can begin to address the problem. And I want to suggest, what if Flannery's work was a means for her to reach beyond where she could actually go in real life? Maybe it was a way that she could work out some of those things that she couldn't do in the everyday. Maybe she was shouting at herself. But with that said, I want to confess her racism and the racism of her time and ours and ask that through considering her life and work, we can become more aware of the grace that comes for us all. One thing um, that I love about redemption is that we have quirks, which we talked about last month. And one of our quirks, I think, is that we lean into the places where we can sometimes feel offense or that we find ourselves jarred. And we recognize those moments as intrusions of grace. In fact, it's one of the things that drew Bobby and I here many years ago. We knew that we needed to be with other image bearers who challenged us to see through God's eyes the upside-down nature of the kingdom. And part of that is letting ourselves hear from unlikely prophets. I remember one of our first Sundays here at Redemption, I asked one of our homeless folks, I said, how are you doing? And she said, I'm doing really good now. I'm warm. It was really cold under the bridge. And at that moment, my vision went from small to large. And I broke inside. And I realized that I was like Mrs. Turpin. This woman's answer had woken me up to my own blindness to the people around me. It had never even crossed my mind that on this cold morning, her life was starkly different than mine. So Flannery asked us, are we willing to hear from peculiar prophets, she herself being one of them, and are we willing to let intrusions of grace change how we see the world? Grace can sometimes be offensive because it is gratuitous. It's abundant. It's not naturally how we would order the world. Grace includes the most unlikely, the ones we may not think to invite, maybe the ones we don't want to invite, the self-righteous, the con artist, the racist, who were all prophets in her stories, maybe the ultra-conservative, the ultra-liberal, anyone we may want to label as other or freakish, not like me. But grace does not discriminate, not for the greatest prophet, nor for the least among us but will we have eyes to see and ears to hear? Um, Flannery was in and out of hospitals for 13 years. 
She was on crutches and loads of drugs. Remarkably, she did not succumb to being a victim, but avidly encouraged her friends in the faith, and she did some of her best writing at the end of her life. She had a really great sense of humor, actually, about her disease, and at the same time saw it as God's mercy to her. Because to her, suffering was a participation in the divine life, taking part in Christ's sufferings. And on August 3rd, 1964, at the age of 39, she died and traveled to her true country. She dwelt on joy in the last days of her life, on the lives of the saints, and she prayed with them. Jonathan Rogers writes, It is remarkable to think about this woman who had made a name for herself with stories of earthly terror and grotesquerie, meditating every day on the province of joy, lest she be ignorant of the concerns of her true country. All that darkness was in the service of eternal brightness. All that violence was in the service of peace and serenity. The writer whose every story was a thunderclap took her place beyond the region of thunder. Flannery O'Connor never claimed to be a saint. She actually said, I believe there are many types of saints as there are souls to be saved. Becoming a saint to her was a long process that extended even into eternity, and the only moment she was really concerned with was the moment she was living in. So looking at her work and the obvious problems with it, I think that Flannery asks us to consider if if the offenses in our own lives, things like traumas, insults, books thrown at us, sufferings and humiliations we all experience, even the tiny deaths we die to our own beliefs, what if those moments that jar us so badly could actually be moments of grace? And will we allow ourselves, like Mrs. Turpin, to see the ugliness in ourselves, which very well may be our virtues at times? Can we stop putting faith in ourselves and what we have figured out and let God give us new lenses of a sacramental imagination, this awareness that sees the layers of meaning in our daily lives? Can we accept a God grounded in mystery who gives grace indiscriminately out of love and mercy? And will we let ourselves be swept up into the communion of saints and see as God sees? Flannery O'Connor's life and writing shout at us, and they draw for us in bold figures a sacramental awareness, a way of seeing God's kingdom in the details of our messy, very real lives. Here, grace does break through, and it does so violently. In her stories, the grotesque characters and the voices of imperfect prophets shock our sensibilities. She, like her characters, and ultimately all of us, are fumbling into grace. Flannery O'Connor shows how God offers grace and redemption to each one of us in his excessively abundant, beautiful mercy, if we will be willing to have our eyes opened. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the life of a peculiar prophet, Flannery O'Connor. Her work shows us how to begin seeing with a bigger vision. Help us to consider our own mundane, 
embodied lives. And we ask that you would help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear the ways your kingdom is breaking through our ceilings. Save us from books being slammed into our heads to turn on the lights of our spiritual sight. Wake us up to intrusions of grace. Infuse us with the shocking speed of your mercy. Enable us to live in a startling place, the reality of your grace and love, which redeems all unworthiness and invites each one of us to come and join you in redeeming the world. Amen. Thank you, Christina. Flannery O'Connor, one of my favorites. Do you guys know, had you heard of Flannery O'Connor? Yes. Good Country People is my favorite short story, if you want to look it up. We're going to receive communion together now, and um, like we do every week, we just ask that you come forward. The ushers will say, or not the ushers, but the servers will say to you, remember the body and blood of Christ, and you can respond with uh, amen, or I will remember, whichever you like. And just a reminder, there's no barrier to participating in communion here. If you call in the name of Christ, you are most welcome at this table. We'll read uh, from First Corinthians um, what Paul told the church. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you to bless this bread and this cup. May it be to us a spiritual food and drink and a means of your grace. As we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again to live inside of us and make us new from the inside out. Then send us out into the world to be salt and light and let the world feast on us and taste and see that you are good so that all may know your goodness. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Will you come?